Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Well, hello, Missio Day. It is great to be with you and have the opportunity to preach today. We are in the middle of a series on Nehemiah called The Return, and this week we're going to focus on the opposition that Nehemiah faces, and it's some serious opposition, and how he responds and how we should respond to opposition in our own lives. Um, I want to uh, ask you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah 4, and the reason I'm doing that is because in the, uh, for, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the entire chapter um, and all the verses. I'm going to trust that you can follow along in your Bibles and just read the beginning portion um, today, and, and we'll go from there. So if you would, Nehemiah 4 pull up your phone or your Bible, and um, we'll start in verse 1. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Let's pray. God, we'd ask this morning that you would help us learn um, how to deal with opposition because we know it's coming. Anytime we choose to follow you, we know... um, The opposition is coming. And God, we ask that we would uh, not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word this morning, that we would uh, understand this and that we would live it out. Amen. So early on at Missio de Uptown, uh, we we found this interesting trend. Uh, Anytime that we would baptize somebody and they would like make this proclamation to the world that they were followers of Jesus, they were they pledged their allegiance to, to Jesus and the kingdom of God um, they would face incredible opposition, like almost immediately after they were baptized they would uh, face like significant temptation, sometimes it was an internal temptation, just like, like it felt like Satan was stoking this fire, or whatever they, like sins that they were dealing with in their life were just inflamed in that time period. Or sometimes it was outward temptation, meaning there were people that were watching them, uh, living this, trying to live this changed life and living this new reality with Jesus and were wanting to bring them back down or discourage them or mess them up. They didn't believe that the change had actually happened, so they wanted to prove it. And so these, like, these individuals would be uh, f- wanting to follow Jesus with all their hearts, and they'd be mocked by their friends, or would, would, people would, would question whether they were legit. Sometimes mental health issues would pop up that had been fine for, for months. Um, you name it, it happened. And what we had to do is we actually had to begin meeting with anybody that was going to be baptized and not just talking about what baptism meant or not just doing it on the spur of the moment, but to say to these people, hey, listen, if you align yourself with Jesus, opposition is coming your way. That you can expect the fact that Satan's going to be angry about this step of faith in your life. And you need to be prepared and you need to be ready for what's going to transpire. When the kingdom of God advances, there will be opposition. 
This happens in my own life as well. This is, there's, there's a number of examples, but one that I can think of that all of you probably can relate to if you've been part of Missio Day is that Missio Day Uptown uh, years ago decided to, to start. We, we launched off and we're headed towards planting this new church in a new neighborhood. And I just want to tell you, like, there were all sorts of confirming uh, incidences in, in that time period saying this is exactly what God wants you to do. Like, this is what God wants you to step into in your life. Um, and you're, you want, God wants you to participate in bringing the kingdom of God in whatever way you can, humbly and, and with great passion to this neighborhood and, and to be open to what God is going to do there. But there were lots of obstacles I remember I'd never experienced more discouragement in my life in that time period where it felt like individual after individual. It says, I love this church. I want to be part of it. I can't wait to join you in what you're doing. Just a few months later, stepping away, saying, ah, I'm going to go to a different church. Or, oh, I'm moving away for this other opportunity, this job that I have. And it's like, we just, it just felt like every turn we couldn't get any momentum. We couldn't get anybody to like fully step into what we were trying to do. Furthermore, like, and even bigger than that, is like Sarah and I had never had significant problems in our marriage. For many years, we, you know, 10 years, or I guess six or seven years, we've been married at that time. And, and it just it caused all sorts of turmoil and difficulty, trials. And even though we were on the same page and we knew this is what God wanted us to do, it was really hard. We just recognized in our own lives that, 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 every, like, that the more that we stepped into what God wanted us to do, the more the opposition stepped up. And there was so much discouragement. Even in the first few months after uh, starting regular services in the neighborhood, it was, it was just like the, this constant pressure to just give up. This is too hard. It's never going to work out. You're going to be a failure. You're going to uh, lead all these people into this, and then it's going to, to be a flop. There's, like, Satan's too strong in the, the, the place that you're trying to do this in. You're not good enough. You know, all these things, these lies came into my heart. So here we have uh, Nehemiah being called out to an even bigger task than any of the things that I just mentioned. But he's going out, and he's going to rebuild this wall. And if he's successful, um, he's going to be a hero. He's going to uh, bring about the, the uh, renewal in Israel. He's going to uh, sort of lead the people out of exile into this new reality in their lives. And this is a significant thing. And so as he, um, he kind of steps into this reality, unsurprisingly, he faces immediate opposition. I mean, I think you, I already said it again, but it bears repeating. If you set out to please God, you will be automatically subject to warfare and opposition. See, people were probably perfectly fine with Nehemiah before this. I mean, you think about him. He's working for the king. He has this high position of privilege and power. He's kind of the butler for a foreign king. I mean, people are probably looking at him and saying, look at what this guy has accomplished in a foreign land with a foreign king. Uh, he has wealth, he has responsibility, he has position, he has power. And now he has this vision and this, this, this plan to, uh, and he asks the king and he even gets the permission of the king to go and rebuild this wall. Unsurprisingly, many people, not just Sanballat, but he's the first one, is angry and he ridicules Nehemiah. And he essentially asks these questions um, 
in the text, he says, who are these weak and unfit Jews uh, doing this? Like, what are you guys doing? This is a waste of your time. It's not worthy of your time. You should give up. And on top of that, you don't have the courage to finish it. You'll run out of resources. All the stones are burned. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough people. You don't have enough time. Um, You're too weak in spirit to do this. And then Tobiah, a friend of Sanballat, jumps right in and he says, if a fox climbed on the wall that you're building, it would fall down. They're asking these questions like, what are you doing here? We don't want you here. Uh, What you're doing is, is really not worth it. You aren't the right person. You are capable of doing it. See, I think that what happens first is often these like verbal assaults, right? And that's what he's, uh, Nehemiah is experiencing first with Sambala and Tobiah. They're, they're starting with kind of this intimidation to say, you should give up. This is never going to be worth your time. You can't do it. People are too lazy. People are incapable. You don't have enough money. You're too poor. And then when Nehemiah begins to make progress, they step up their game. They start using psychological intimidation. In verses 7 and 8, they start to say, if you do this, we're going to come and physically harm you. In fact, in verse 11, it goes on to say that you can prepare, you can do whatever you want to do, but when some point, when you're least expecting it, we're going to come while you're working and we're going to kill you and put an end to your work. On top of that, All the countries surrounding Jerusalem became uh, allied together against this plan of Nehemiah. So you can imagine Nehemiah feeling like he's doing exactly what God wants him to do. He's stepping into this reality of building this wall, recovering the place of Jerusalem, God's city, capital city, right? And all around him, he has enemies, people threatening to kill him, threatening to disrupt his work, saying that it's impossible to do what he's saying he wants to do. It's a very vulnerable moment because Nehemiah knows that not only is this hard and stressful, but the wall is weak and feeble, like he's saying. There's gaps there. The the gates aren't fully erected. The, the, The wall is only partially built. Everyone around them wanted, hated them and wanted to destroy them. It's natural to be discouraged. And even the, it goes on to say that the, the laborers, the people, are tired. The rubble has become too much. They start to doubt their ability to actually finish the task. And they start to ask the questions that the enemies are saying. Like, is this really worthy of our time? Is this goal too big? They become overwhelmed by the task, overwhelmed by the dust. So they're halfway there building the wall. And not only does the enemy start to criticize and condemn and threaten, but there starts to be turmoil inside of the community. When we experience opposition, when we experience stress, when we become distressed in our inner being, lots of things happen. One, one thing that happens is our immune system can be impacted. Like we, can, we are more susceptible to being sick. Our brains function differently. It's hard to focus on the future because you have to uh, focus inward on yourself. Your perspective shrinks. It's very hard. 
And, and whenever we get a task in the kingdom of God, that vision, like what God is calling us to, often pulls us along. But when we're stressed, when we, we're facing opposition, what happens to us is it begins to shrink our perspective. It begins to turn us inward. It becomes very hard to see and allow that vision to pull us forward. And it's one thing when you're part of a community that's going after something and everybody on the outside is criticizing, condemning, and, 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 and even you know, saying bad things about you and, or going to come and, and harm you if there's unity inside. But once that unity inside that group begins to cave in, once you start having this inward turmoil, it becomes the hardest, doesn't it? When the people that you're leading, like Nehemiah, or the, the group that you're a part of, begins to doubt and begins to question, and begins to start to say that this isn't worth our time, and this is, that the value isn't worth the, the, the work, that's when it becomes really difficult. There's always incredible opposition when we're doing the things of God. Anything worthwhile uh, for God is going to be costly, is going to cause trouble. I think of a couple examples, um, very different examples, but I wanted to share them both this morning. One was, is Martin Luther King. I think about uh, him, and when he decided he wanted to start protests, when he started, he wanted to start speaking out, when he wanted to start to, to lead out um, speaking about injustices. He had to know, didn't he? Like, he had to know. Maybe he didn't know it was going to be as bad as it was, but he had to know that it was going to be hard. He had to know there was going to be incredible opposition. He had to know that it's possible. I mean, he had letters and, and, and crosses burning in his front, uh, front lawn. I mean, he had to know that his, his life was at stake in this cause. And I think that there's a place kind of in the middle, and that's what the people are in the middle of this opposition, wherever all the enemies are surrounding, where it's easiest to give up. And can you imagine if he did? Can you imagine if he had given up on the dream that God had given him? Can you imagine if other people uh, during the civil rights movement had stopped what they were doing and give up and just said, like, it's time for someone else to take the mantle. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. It's not worth it. Uh, you, you wouldn't blame them, but can you imagine where we would be at? Another example I thought of was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is probably one of the greatest theologians in the history of the United States. And he was part of the first great awakening. He saw hundreds and hundreds of people come to faith in his church, laying aside their sin and committing their lives to Jesus. He was a tremendous preacher. But by the end of his life and in the midst of his life, everyone doubted his work. Many people called him a phony. And at the end of his ministry, he was actually fired. After being at church for uh, decades, being part of the, the Great Awakening, one of the greatest uh, movements of God in the, the history of our country, he was fired. Of the 230 men that were allowed to vote, only 23 voted in his favor. What if people called by God to institute his kingdom and bring about his kingdom in the world simply gave up when it got hard? Interspersed throughout this narrative, we see responses by Nehemiah. And I want to highlight his responses because I think that they teach us what to do when we face opposition. The first thing that Nehemiah does is he prays. It's a lot different than my response. When I face opposition and criticism, when I face stress, my first response is to complain. 
uh, to complain to Sarah, to complain to my friends, to you know, uh, throw myself a pity party, uh, get stressed out, put a pillow over my head, take a nap. Um, it's, it's not, the reaction is not to pray, but Nehemiah is different. His first response when he f- he's facing this turmoil is to pray. And I want to read you his prayer in verse 4 and 5. It says this, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So I thought that him going to prayer was good, but did you hear that prayer? Condemn these people, God. Make them slaves. As we have been exiled, I pray that you exile them. Do not forgive them. Judge them. That's Nehemiah's prayer. I read this uh, multiple times this week, and, and the first, like, ten times, I, I, mean, I couldn't get over the fact of how uh, mean it was. <laughs> I mean, you, we hear Jesus' words to, to pray for those that persecute us, to love our enemies, um, right, to um, turn the other cheek. And here Nehemiah is saying, I pray, God, that they are enslaved for how they're treating us. I pray that you do not forgive them. Doesn't this sound like just a terribly uh, horrible prayer? It's just, what type of person prays that their enemies be given over to plunder as they become captives? Yet, Nehemiah's prayer is not that uncommon in the Bible. And we have to come to grips with that. Like, this is the prayer that Nehemiah makes. It's the prayer that David makes. If you read the imprecatory Psalms, they are very similar. They make us a little bit uncomfortable. There are laments that are filled with anger. And David wrote many of these. The man after God's own heart. He's angry. He's sick of it. He wants God to shut down his enemy, to do something, to turn them over to exile, to ruin them, and to not forgive them. There's a couple things I think we should note because it it does seem like a harsh prayer. The first thing is I I think we need to to say is that Nehemiah uh, doesn't plan a, a riot with his own men to go after his enemies. He's asking God to do this. He's not saying, I'm going to go do this. He's saying, God, would you bring about justice? So I think the way we have to view this is that there was an injustice happening. All these countries were going to to, uh, come and kill and destroy and hurt the Israelites. And what uh, Nehemiah believes is that God is a just God. God is a caring God. God is a loving God. And he will stand up and fight against injustice. And so he is calling God to bring about justice. In other places in this text, he doesn't always respond in the same way. In chapter 2, they criticize him, and he responds with words. In chapter 6, they're trying to trick Nehemiah to, to come and meet them, and they're going to either take him and, and, and imprison him, or they're going to kill him. And he doesn't respond that way. They, they, uh, he basically says, um, I'm sorry, I'm really busy, but I can't make it work. He doesn't curse them. But prayer, I think, for Nehemiah, and what it is for us as well when we're facing opposition, is, uh, is a cathartic place where we are allowed to get out whatever is in our heart. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves, are we holy ourselves to God in this way? Like, are we fully honest like Nehemiah is? I think so many of us repress our feelings to God. And God is like, that's not going to work. 
Let it out. Even if you're not responding in the correct way, even if you're promoting evil, even if your mind is, is sick with revenge, I want to know it. I want to hear it. I want you to cry out what you really think and what you really feel and what you actually believe inside in this moment. That's what prayer is all about. Is calling on God to be just, is bringing our whole selves to God and allowing God to shape us and form us. And in the midst of this prayer, uh, after uh, Nehemiah prays in verses four and five, he does other things moving on later. And I want to share a couple things that he does beyond just praying. The second thing he does is he gathers all the nobles around him and he reminds them of who God is. This is what he says in verse 14. After I looked over, things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them, speaking of his enemies. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. I love that. See, the basis for the continued faithfulness of God is the faithfulness of God and what he's already done. He reminds them of what he has done. This is what we do every, every week when we take communion is that, like, it, it, it may be beyond just this, but there's a call, right? Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians. He says, remember this. Like, do these things in remembrance of me. Remember that, that I, I died for your sins, that I gave up my body and, and my blood for your sake, for the forgiveness of sins. Remember that thing, the faithfulness of God in the act of the cross, so that it infuses your life and your belief in, your faithful, in the faithfulness of God now. And so they were uh, obviously before the cross. And so what is Nehemiah saying? Remember how God is great and awesome. Remember how he promised Abraham that we would be a great nation. Remember how he promised Moses that he would deliver his people out of slavery into the promised land. Remember how he guided our people in the wilderness into the promised land. Remember how he's bringing us even now out of exile and giving us favor to rebuild these walls. And then the third thing that Nehemiah does is he comes up with a strategy. I think this is really important because I think when we face opposition, there are kind of two camps. One camp is to pray and the other camp is sometimes to take action. Some people will say, well, prayer is the action. That's all we need. God's sovereign. God's in control. He's going to do it. And other people say, we got to take action, and, and, and they don't pray. And, and for whatever reason, these things are sometimes pitted against one another. Prayer and action, prayer and action. And it's like the Nehemiah perfectly in one chapter is showing us how we pray and how we take action. And he comes up with this strategic plan. I think there are some people that probably lean in on like strategy, right, when they get into trouble. And other people that would lean in on prayer in our church. And we need those things to be combined. This is what he says. This is Nehemiah's response. This is his plan. He says, all right, everybody stop their work. He says, we're going to arm everybody in case, in case these armies attack us. And then we're going to place everybody in their family groups. And the reason we're going to place them in families is because you're more likely to fight harder if you're fighting for your loved ones than just by yourself. Then he says, I'm going to divide you into two groups. One group is going to do, continue to do the work, and the other group is going to um, be armed in case they do attack. The, third thing, or the next thing that we're going to do is we're going to increase our workload, and we're going to walk from dawn into starlight. And then the last thing he says is we're going to keep everybody in the city. All of you need to stay inside the walls. And the reason we're doing that is because when you go outside the walls, that's where all the rumors 
are happening. That's where all the doubt is being put in your minds. This is where you're losing your heart and being discouraged and losing your passion for the vision that God has given us. We don't want you to be discouraged. This is a really great strategic plan, and it models how we are to act when we face opposition. It's a perfect image of how we're trusting in God to work and also taking human responsibility. And there's a whole other sermon there. And I think the perfect, I, I, I'm not, I don't have enough time. Uh, I wish I did. But if you want, you could read Act 27. I think it's a great example of trusting in God and his promises while also taking responsibility. Paul is there. But I want to leave you with three applications. Three applications. I want to start where we began. We need to expect opposition whenever we're following after God. When we set our heart to serve God, we're going to experience opposition. And I just want to ask you the question, are you aware of that? Because that, if you take away anything from this, is that expectation that when you're following after God, you should expect opposition. If you decide that you want to be a more generous person, you want to start giving money towards a cause or to the church or whatever else, I can almost guarantee you that when you set your heart to be a more generous person, there's going to be a bill or there's going to be something that pops up, an unexpected expense that comes your way that's going to question your uh, desire to be a generous person. Like it's going to be hard right off the gate. Almost guarantee that that will take place. That's an example. And I think what we have to realize is when we're following after God and, and opposition comes, that's not a negative thing. It should be expected and it's not a negative thing. Jesus says very clearly in the Gospels, he said, blessed are you whenever you are ridiculed and persecuted because of me. Another place he says, woe to you if everyone thinks well of you. That's a pretty powerful statement. If everyone likes you, if no one has anything negative to say to you, if you have no opposition, are you really following Jesus? You should probably take a gander into what's actually happening, what you're actually doing in the world. Second thing think when we, when the opposition comes, we must learn to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. The first class I ever took in seminary, the professor uh, said something in one of the first class, like the first, very first class, first like hour of teaching. And he made the statement and I'll never forget it. It stuck with me forever. He said something that I'll never forget. He said, every single day you should wake up. And if you have a mirror, go to the mirror, look in the mirror and preach the gospel to yourself. He said, if you're going to follow Jesus every single day, you need to go and you need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to strengthen yourself in the Lord. David does this, doesn't he? Psalm 27, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me and devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. I love Acts 16. There's a picture of, uh, not a story of Paul and Silas, and they're just imprisoned, right? And the story goes that they are uh, in prison, and they are singing songs and praying. They're strengthening themselves in the Lord. They are actually joyful because they're fit to uh, face the opposition and the ridicule. That, that comes when they're following Jesus. They're like, we are honored to be able to do this. Let's praise God for this. Let's strengthen ourselves in the Lord so we can withstand this time in prison and in jail. 
I think there are times in our lives when we need that so much. The other night, even in my family, just a simple thing of putting on praise and worship songs. I was, we were doing, um, we were singing worship songs off of YouTube with the kids. And I remember singing and dancing and jumping around and just being so encouraged in the Lord in that moment about what God has done and what he is doing. Do you remember? Can you recall? Can you make a list? Do you have a list of what God has done, how he's been faithful, that you can recall over and over again when you're facing opposition? A list of all the things that God has done for me, the very presence of God in your life, his power and provision, his blessing in your life. And the last thing comes from verse 20. And it says, like, when the enemy surrounds you, and they're coming after you. There's a very simple statement. It says, our God will fight for us. And we believe that the application to this is that when we strengthen ourselves in the Lord and we expect opposition, that God is actually going to fight for us. That God's kingdom is going to come and his will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We believe a God that, that saves, a God that redeems, that already came on the cross and that's coming again to redeem and renew all things. And so we believe that God is going to fight for us. Will you pray with me? God, we call upon you today. Whatever opposition we're facing, whatever distressing uh, situation we're facing in our life, God, we're asking you right now to push it back. God, we're asking you to heal what is broken we're asking you to give us strength in the midst of suffering and pain and difficulty and trial. God, we're asking you to fight for us today. Would you strengthen our church in you this morning? Would you give us the courage to continue on when we're discouraged? God, would you give us the courage to step into something even though we know that its opposition is going to come because you want us to do it? God, would you be near to us? Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.